This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've talked about some changes coming in 2018, both to the province and, uh, of course, the country. Uh, probably the biggest change in Ontario will be the change in minimum wage. Uh, it has increased, gone up to $14 an hour. Uh, some businesses uh, saying that this is fine, we can handle it. Other businesses saying, no, we're going we're gonna to cut down on our, our seasonal staff and more automation and what have you. Uh, when will we know... The results of all of this. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Happy New Year, Marvin. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Happy New Year to you. Now, for next year, remember, buy extra fireworks on July 1st and store them. (laughs) And how do you safely store fireworks, Marvin? In the garage. In the garage. There you go. All right. So, uh, but can you imagine going in through an opening, an open door, and then hitting the Christmas tree? What's the? Ch- if you tried to do it that, Marvin, like Griswold Christmas. It exactly. Sounds like a Griswold Christmas to me. If we tried to do that, we probably would never be able to hit the tree. Uh, all right. Let's move on. When will we know how this is going to affect business and such? And do you think that we'll look back at this one day and say that this was a monumental time in Ontario? By the time we we get it to 15 and then use it, uh, then uh, raise it with inflation? Mm. So how long is it going to take? Let's start there. I think six months, two quarters. We should have a pretty clear sight of it by the time of the provincial election in June. Uh, will this be monumental? No, I, I think we're going to look back on this and yawn. I don't think this is nearly going to be the big story of the year. The big story of the year is actually going to be the legalization of marijuana and the selling of that, which will all happen in the second half of the year. But where we've seen this happen, and I need to remind people, we are not leading a parade here. We're joining a parade. Uh, New York City is going to $15 in 2018, and that's 15 American dollars. Uh, parts of California, Sacramento, Fresno, they've already gone there. Seattle has gone there. Alberta is going there. B.C. is going there. And where they've done this, we've noticed no long-term impact. Yes, short-term. Uh, every company's got to figure its own way forward. I think the most common thing we're going to see in the first half of the year is increases in prices, that uh, most small businesses operate on very thin margins. They can't simply absorb these uh, kinds of wage increases. Remember, the minimum wage went up 22%, but what they will do is increase prices to you and I, and they're not going to increase those prices 22%. Labor is a relatively small part of your cup of coffee or a relatively small part of your hamburger. We're going to see price increases probably on the range of 2 3%. And we'll see that play out over this first, uh, let's say, six months of the year. Uh, The mantra around minimum wage has changed. And we had this discussion earlier on in the year, I'm sure, where, uh, you know, back in our day when we started and with our very first job at the local store, doing this, collecting garbage, sweeping floors, what have you, serving staff, um, uh, what have you. This was a entry-level job. This was a starter position job. Mm-hmm. Uh, at what point did it go from there to now a minimum wage job is something to make a living on? And, you mm-hmm. know, I've heard Stats Canada, I've seen stats. people quote Stats Canada saying that this is, in Ontario, less than 9% of... Uh, of those earning uh, a wage, and of those 9%, like two-thirds of this are people under the age of 25, students per se. So when did the discussion change? Is it a, is it a, is it a discussion change that was needed? Mm-hmm. So uh, at the danger of using stats, as you just pointed out, let's just set a baseline for everybody. There's roughly 7.7 million uh, people in Ontario who are part of the workforce, 
uh, in terms of earning minimum wage, absolutely minimum wage, 9.3% of Ontario workforce people earn the minimum wage. That's the highest rate in Canada. The next highest province is Prince Edward Island, 8.2%. And, and, and I think of Prince Edward Island not so much as a province, but just a, a nice city the size of Stony Creek. So, you know, we're not really leading the parade that way. Give you a different stat. What percentage of Ontario workers are earning $15 an hour? Uh, 26% of Ontario workers earn $15 or less per hour. So one quarter of our population are getting this. Now, your argument about younger workers, that's certainly true, whether they are, quote, students who are trying to pay for their university education, or these are entry-level positions after work, or just people who this is, the, this is the work that they find. But when you move it up to the 25% number earning less than $15 an hour, it really is a significant chunk of our population who, who is living on these kind of wages. And what happened certainly with the minimum wage, we went a decade where it didn't move at all. Even though there was consumer price increases, what have you, it didn't move at all. And so what Kathleen Wynne's gamble is, is that if we make this big jump now and basically correct for a decade where the minimum wage wasn't increased, we will, we will, uh, we will survive this fairly well. Uh, Canada is the fastest growing economy in the G7 nations, and Ontario is the fastest growing economy within the various provinces. Our unemployment rate is at the lowest it's been in more than a decade. And so her argument is, if I wanted to make this change, this is the most correct time to do this. If this economy can't withstand this, then when will it ever be able to withstand this? So why did it, why has it taken so long for any sort of increase in the minimum wage? Why, why wasn't it increased in the last 10 years? Well, you know, they're just different philosophies about uh, the minimum wage. You know, there's some people who say no one should aspire to work in a minimum wage job. We should all try to better ourselves and aim at higher level jobs. The average worker in Ontario earns $26 an hour. Uh, and so those are people who've got skills, whether they are from post-secondary education or experience, and they've improved their lot in life. But we do see a number of, of sort of permanent uh, low-end jobs that are created, often in the service sector, restaurants, food services, bars, etc. And they, they just, that's, that's become the normal. And as a result, you also have what we call precarious work, people having to work two or three of those to earn enough money to pay their expenses. So this is not a panacea. This is not a panacea for poverty. I, again, we'll be watching those rates, and I'm sure the poverty rate in Ontario will fall, but it won't go to zero because there are other factors at play here. And I should quickly also note that while this addresses one form of poverty, that's sort of the working poor, there's another argument to be made that our, our people who have had a disability pension, they're not getting an increase. Seniors are not seeing a big increase in their pensions, that there are different kinds of poverty. This only addresses the working poor. Is, how much of this is political, Marvin? Um, because the same government that is hiking the rate uh, or hiked the rate January 1 is the same government that didn't raise it over the last however many years. Well, actually, when I say the decade, the, the liberals, at least certainly in the last five years, have been moving the minimum wage. We actually have to go back starting around the year 2000 when the Mike Harris government was in play. So at least half of those 10 years were a conservative government. And then we had a liberal government. And remember, 2007-8, we were in a recession. It just didn't seem like that was a good time to do it. But mm. now that we've come out of the recession and we're back into, and in case you're wondering, this is what a boom time looks like. Now that we're back into some better times, I think they're feeling this. Now, is it political? I think the answer is absolutely. There's a, a provincial election in June. This is a government that is... Um, Oh, it received tons of criticism for the way it's handled the hydrophile, whether it's gas plants or, or the heat versus heat controversy. 
there's plenty of reasons to not reelect the Liberals, but they've given you an interesting reason to change your mind. Uh, I think I think the most interesting part of this is Patrick Brown, the head of the Conservatives. A year ago, he was absolutely opposed to the minimum wage going up, even one iota. He's changed his tune now so that if you elect him in June, he's still going to move to $15, but rather than on January 1st of next year, he's going to move it in 25-cent increments over four years. But what a change in policy from dead set against to I still want to get there, I'm just going to get there a little slower. Should this be set to inflation in order to keep this in check so we don't end up here? Yes, absolutely. And now the, the question then again is, what inflation rate do you use? And you can debate, the, and not to make this too much of an economic argument, but we have what we call the all-in inflation rate, which includes volatile things like gasoline, which can go up and down because of forces beyond our control. Or we have another rate we call the core rate, where you take those volatile things out. Uh, for poorer people, uh, both of those rates are very important. Obviously, poorer people need gasoline to get to work or pay for the bus, etc., um, we'd probably want to include that, but we could argue which rate we use. We just probably should not get in a position where we just keep the rate stagnant for any great period of time. Uh, be, simply because sooner or later there has to be a correction, and that hurts everyone, does it not? I mean, even during the recession, um, well, I guess nobody's wage went up during the recession, uh, so it would have been stagnant anyway with minimum wage. Uh, but at the end of the day, will we, not, will we be revisiting this in another five or ten years? Well, uh, so let me make two different arguments for you here. There's the economic argument that says if you've got the right number, then inflation adjusted, and that should be fine. There's the second argument, which is the poverty aspect of this. And, and just to, so that you know, I'm sure poverty advocates later this year will come out with a study that says, well, you know, that $15 an hour, that's not a living wage anymore. It's now $16.50 or $17. That is another target that moves. But, you know, I think at this point, uh, there's a political argument when you want to move the minimum wage. This is as much an economic argument. And then, as you're pointing out, with this voting coming, if you've got a million people, if you've got a million people, and that's roughly the number of people who earn less than $14 an hour right now who suddenly get a wage increase, are they going to recognize this when they go to vote uh, in June? If you look at a map of Ontario, uh, it's really a very blue-looking map. It's only the cities that uh, sparkle in red and orange. And it's the cities where probably a minimum wage increase is the most needed. The cost of, of living in Toronto is significantly higher than it is in Hamilton. It's more high here, for instance, than it is in Brantford. But I think those are the urban voters. The question is, will they resonate enough and give the Liberals another mandate? That's the political gamble that Kathleen Wynne's making. Right now, the magic number everywhere seems to be 15. By the time we all get to 15, will 15 be enough? No, <laughs> and it's not now. So uh, already the signs say that it's around 1650. Now, just to give you a sense again about minimum wages, uh, in Australia, the minimum wage is actually $18 an hour. In uh, Sweden, it's $23 an hour. That's 23 Canadian dollars when you do the exchange. In New York City, it's actually going to be on the order of $18 as well when you do the exchange to Canadian dollars. I'm not saying at all that we should be leading the parade and have the highest minimum wage. But if Calgary and Alberta can go there, remember, they've been in a recession for the last couple of years. If B.C. can go there, I think we'll do this. Now, again, I want to be clear. Businesses cannot simply absorb a 22 percent wage increase. They've just not got the profit margins to do that. So those of us who are a little better off need to brace ourselves for some price increases. Tim Hortons did their price increases before Christmas. They raised a cup of coffee by 15 cents a cup. I think you're going to see some other restaurants do it this month, next month. 
Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see other kinds of products go up, but they're not going to go up 22%. They're probably going to go up on the order of 3%. And, and again, it's, it's almost like a little tax. Uh, those of us who are more in the middle class are going to have to pay a little bit more for some goods, but we're going to let the lowest people gain. And by the way, another quick note, those people who are earning minimum wage, they're not going to take this increase uh, and put it in their TFSA or their RSP or their offshore Cayman Island account. They're actually going to go out and buy more goods. And so there is actually going to be a very stimulative effect also on the economy that we're going to try to measure in the first half of the year. Will, they, be, will there be a tougher time for summer students looking for employment this year? I see, again, I don't, think that's the, I don't think that's the answer. I think municipalities or other organizations that need to hire summer students have factored this in in some way. Now, perhaps uh, where, where we've seen these uh, studies done in other places, we haven't seen the number of jobs go down. We have seen the number of hours change a bit. So it's conceivable that rather than getting a 40-hour summer job at $11 an hour, you're now going to get a 35-hour job at $14 an hour. So you may see your hours reduced slightly. But that seems to be the only impact. It doesn't seem to change the number of jobs, but for some people, their hours get reduced slightly. Uh, Some who have uh, been complaining against the increase say if you raise the wage of a minimum wage employee, then the person who was already making $15 an hour now has to go up and then the person above them has to go up and so on and so forth. Is that more fear mongering? Uh, No, not completely. So we call that the cascade effect. If you are earning $3 more than minimum wage or $14.60, and suddenly now the minimum wage is $4, you're going to say to your employer, wait a minute, where's my, where's my gap? Yeah. So I think we're also going to see this story in the first six months of the year that some employers will voluntarily bump them up. Whether they'll keep that $3 an hour premium, I'm not sure, but there'll be some bumps up that we call that a cascade. Also, I suspect that when there are some union contracts to be renegotiated over the next two or three years, you're going to hear some of those arguments as to why we need a a bigger than a rate of inflation increase to maintain some of the separations. But having said that to you, remember if the average worker is earning $26 an hour, this is actually going to stop at some place. I am not going to go to my employer at McMaster and say, look, I need a 20% increase Mm. to maintain the difference between me and minimum wage people. I doubt you're going to go to CHML and do the same thing. So uh, I, I think, yes, at the lower end, if you are below that $26, we'll see a little shuffling. No doubt about it. But, but I think it's something that we'll be able to absorb. And, and that's why I think, again, in six months, we're probably going to look back on this as much ado about very little. Uh, Will, how much do you think NAFTA is going to play into all of this in the next year? Well, NAFTA, for instance, or the rise in the uh, interest rates, which I suspect we're going to see this year, at least two raises of at least a quarter of a percent, perhaps as many as three raises of a quarter percent, those are going to have more profound economic impacts than this change in the minimum wage. Um, and, and so I think uh, what Donald Trump tries to do with NAFTA, we're going to see the next round of negotiations open here in about two weeks. I believe they're meeting in Quebec City. We're going to see whether the American position has softened a little bit allows us a little more wiggle room in these conversations. Is Donald wanting simply to rip up NAFTA? And by the way, while that's going on, we're going to start some talks with Britain about a free trade agreement. We've got TPP-11 in the background. Even China wants to talk free trade. This is a year where trade is going to dominate the discussion, but I'm not fearful of any of this because if we don't, if, if America, for whatever reason, wants to build a wall and not trade with us, which I find it hard to believe, regardless of what Donald Trump wants, we've got governors and senators saying, 
Canada is very, very important to their economies. But even if they start to build a wall, there are other nations among the world who, who want to do business with us. They still see us very positively. So I think trade will be a big discussion, but I don't think it's going to have much of an economic impact in this year, perhaps down the road, depending upon the big news, whether it's good or bad uh, this year. What do you think we'll be talking about one year from now as the biggest story of 2018? I, I still think it's the legalization of marijuana. This mm-hmm. is going to change our culture in many ways. Um, the late Pierre Burton, the, the author, well into his 80s when Pierre Burton passed away, was a, a user of marijuana. When people said, Pierre, why are you doing this? Are you doing this to get high or something like that? He was no. He found at his age he was having problems sleeping, that if he had a joint before he went to bed, he actually slept better. There are some seniors who have problems with uh, their appetites. This will increase their appetites. I think you're going to see quite a change in the fabric of society. I think everyone else thinks it's just going to be those people up to the age 25 or 30 who are going to be visiting these marijuana shops. But I think you're going to see people from across the spectrum using it as an alternative, almost like a natural medicine. And I think this this change to the fabric of our society is, is probably going to be the big story of 2018. Do you think Big Pharma will take a larger role in this? They have seem to be on the sidelines for most of it. Many have said because lots of this can't be patented. Uh, do you think they'll play another a larger role in this? Well, this really then is up to the government. Remember, the federal government is the one decriminalizing marijuana, and then they're giving it to each province to see how they're going to uh, produce and distribute it. Uh, Ontario has decided to do it with a limited number of LCBO-controlled stores, I think the first story you're going to see probably in July or August is that the number of stores the province has opened is insufficient. There, there's going to be lineups or people complaining about inability to buy, followed up shortly thereafter, probably by September, that we haven't contracted for enough production, that demand has exceeded supply. In ne- Nevada, where they legalized marijuana, the demand went was so high that they actually had to import from other states, one of those states being California, which at that point it wasn't a legal product, but it could be grown in California and then shipped to Nevada. I think you're going to see some of this as we right-size. It's, it's very a, a very potent thing we're doing. Now, look, this is what we're doing with the minimum wage. is certainly going to impact the lowest aspects of our society, but I think with the change in marijuana, you're going to see it across the spectrum. And, and in a way, the way we think today of drinking a glass of wine with dinner or having a beer when walking a hockey game – I think we're going to see that kind of change to that fabric. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. And Happy New Year. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Delegations from North and South Korea could be meeting for the first official discussions since 2015 ahead of the Winter Olympics next month. Talk's going to be held on January 9th. This comes forward in response to comments made by Kim Jong-un where he suggested immediate talks over sending a delegation to the Olympics. To talk more about all of this, Benoit Hardy-Chartron is with us, Senior Research Associate, Global Security and Politics with CIGI, and he is on the line with us uh, from Japan. Benoit, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Happy New Year. Sure, Happy New Year to you, Scott. So why the change here in Kim Jong-un's attitude? 
Well, that's uh, that's an inter- interesting question, and it was an interesting um, New Year message, New Year address by Kim Jong-un. We know that for the last year or two, the rhetoric has been very harsh coming from the North. And uh, so, therefore, when the address, when he made the address, which is very highly um, listened to and paid and analyzed by all sorts of analysts, including, including myself, it was a bit of a surprise, I must say. However, um, when you look at it from a certain angle, Kim Jong-un... Uh, making overtures to South Korea may be a way uh, among several other ways or uh, maneuvers at, a dis- as, at his uh, disposal to try to sort of drive a wedge between South Korea and uh, the United States. We know that, of course, under President Trump, the United States have been wanting to put a lot of pressure on North Korea. And now seeing this sort of rapprochement between South Korea and North Korea is not really going to be uh, is not really going to be uh, in make Donald Trump very happy. We can imagine that he is going to probably give a call to South Korean President uh, Moon Jae-in and uh, try to see if there's a way that they can coordinate that their, their policies a little better. So um, that might be one of the reasons why we are seeing this sort of uh, temporary, maybe, uh, change of heart or change of rhetoric from Kim Jong-un. So is Kim Jong-un using the Olympics in that relationship with South, South Korea to drive a wedge between the United States or at least try to rebalance power here? Um, well, that is possible. But the other, the other um, interesting point is, I'm glad you mentioned the Olympics here, uh, but the, the, the Olympics, the thing is, for North Korea, the Olympics have always been perceived as a very important um, stage for which to show its prowess, not only internationally, but also uh, internally. It's always been used, and not only in North Korea, but in other very repressive regimes and other communist regimes in the past. The Olympics have been seen as, uh, as, you know, as a way to show um, as a way to garner support for the regime, because often, very often, the athletes who win medals, who do well at the Olympics, um, you know, they, 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 they go out in front of the world and say that all they do is thanks to the leadership of, of Kim Jong-un and other leaders. And therefore, um, I, in that sense, it's not very surprising that you would see Kim Jong-un trying to make some sort of rapprochement there, because having athletes, North Korean athletes, um, at the Olympics is going to look good for him, if not internationally, at least domestically. You, you have to imagine or you have to understand that in North Korea, um, you know, any sort of success by North Korean athletes is heralded as a sort of victory for the whole nation. And in the past, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to know that North Korean athletes have done very well in previous Olympics, um, even a few years ago in Sochi. And therefore, um, it's not surprising that they will want to have uh, perhaps the same similar kind of success in Pyeongchang. So has he decided whether or not North Korea will participate? And isn't it getting kind of late? Well, you know, here's the thing. We do not know yet. Um, the, there all, so far, there are only two North Korean athletes who have officially uh, qualified for the, for the games. Um, we know that Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, has wanted to have North Korean athletes in the game. He's wanted them as well to uh, sort of uh, parade together, together during the, uh, the opening ceremonies. Um, so we don't know officially what is what is the North Korean uh, you know plan for that uh, for that specifically. But yes, if there are if during the upcoming uh, meetings, if there are some sort of deals that are struck between the two sides, uh, we can certainly expect expect uh, at least a small delegation of North Korean athletes uh, 
going to the games with the South, which would be an important symbolic gesture considering the sort of tensions that have been going on between the two sides for the last few years. You know, it hasn't uh, the sort of um, athletes, North and South Korean athletes uh, parading or, you know, marching hand in hand. We've seen that in the past, but certainly not in the last few years. So that would be uh, under the current circumstances an important uh, step. So is Kim Jong-un using the Olympics as a way to kind of soften things up? Is this almost a peace offering? Um, I wouldn't go as far as uh, saying that this would be a sort of peace offering from the Kim Jong-un regime. He may want to, and again, going back to my earlier um, argument you know, regarding the fact that they, he may be trying to uh, drive a sort of wedge between uh, a gap between the South, uh, South Korea and, and uh, the United States. Um, what I think uh, the Kim Jong-un regime is trying to do is um, so not only trying to drive a wedge between the two allies, but really not necessarily uh, maybe in the short term trying to you know, soften the tensions. But the reality is the underlying tensions or the underlying reasons or currents that have uh, led to the recent tensions are not um, getting anywhere close to abating. And therefore, um, we cannot mistake these sort of overtures for a long-term trend. Um, we may see um, maybe a decrease in tension between North and South Korea, but with the Americans especially, I don't think we're anywhere close to, any, to seeing any sort of abatement of tensions, and especially in the spring when we are likely to see military exercises between South, uh, joint exercises with South Korea and the United States, tensions are very likely to flare up again. So although this must be seen as a positive step, we can't really, as I mentioned, mistake that for a, a real change of heart or a peace offering, as you had suggested earlier. So how is the U.S. viewing not only uh, this discussion regarding the Olympics, but his New Year's uh, address? So uh, the New York address was very interesting because although uh, Kim Jong-un did make some overtures towards so uh, South Korea, he did, uh, again, um, you know, use some typical North Korean-esque rhetoric regarding uh, the threat and regarding the nuclear threat. He said, um, among other threatening uh, declarations, that he still had the nuclear button on his table, on his desk. And therefore, that's yeah. a very clear message to the, to the, to the, sorry, to the United States that uh, the North Korean is North Korea is now a full-fledged nuclear power and ready at any time to strike the United States, and therefore um, the U.S. and the Trump administration, I think, viewed uh, this is viewing this uh, New Year message very uh, suspiciously because for for two very clear reasons: one, um, the threat from North Korea is still there, and Kim Jong Un has made it very clear during the during the, the during the, the speech, but also the fact that during the speech, uh, he, you know, as I mentioned earlier, trying to, trying to sort of uh, getting closer to South Korea and uh, making things really a lot harder for Trump and a lot of other Trump allies, such as Japan, who are still um, advocating for stronger pressure on North Korea. Is this Kim Jong-un saying, you know what, I got the weapons now, I'm at the table, whether you guys like it or not, so this is my stance now. If you don't like it, I load up. I mean, is, it, is this a sign that he is ready, he has what he wants, so now his rhetoric has, has changed? Well, you know, it is possible, because Kim Jong-un uh, and the regime from North Korea has been wanting one thing for several years, and for actually two decades. What has always wanted um, and tried to acquire is 
the full operational capability to hit the United States with long-range missiles and uh, miniaturized warheads. We know now with the past few tests that they have the capabilities to hit the United States. Uh, the one thing we're, we're still not sure about right now is whether or not it has the capability to uh, miniaturize warheads. There are some suspicions that they are, that they have been able to do so, depending on which intelligence agency you ask. Uh, but th if they're not there yet, uh, they are certainly very close to being able to mount nuclear warheads on long-range missiles. Now, given the fact that they're extremely close, or if they're not there already, they're very close to being officially a fully operational nuclear power, it may be uh, certainly a way for them to say, look, now we have what we wanted, now let's talk. Because basically all, what they've always wanted, if there are any talks with the United States or with the international community, they want to, have, they want to hold those talks from a position of relative power. And yeah. for them to have now this capability makes it a lot easier uh, in case of, of, uh, of talks, of course, of uh, any sort of uh, negotiations with the international community. It makes it a lot easier for them to obtain whatever they want, to obtain concessions, um, if they ever get to the negotiation table, of course. Benoit Hardy Chartrand has been with us, Senior Research Associate, Global Security and Politics with CIGI, speaking with us from J uh, Japan today. Benoit, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Elliot, thanks for taking the time to join us. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, Scott. Uh, looking forward to working with you throughout 2018. I know, my goodness, that sounds, uh, I don't know what it sounds like. It sounds intimidating at this point, <laughs> uh, especially because I just got through the last week. Um, why the change in tone from Kim Jong-un? Is it because now he has... Uh, the nuclear arsenal that he that he needs is 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 he content with toning down the rhetoric? Why why the change in tone? It's entirely plausible. We've got both a carrot and a stick going here. The possibility that he indeed, uh, you and I have been discussing Korea over the last year. He's indeed now achieved what he wants, which is to be taken seriously and to lay a claim to be a world power and some somebody that could actually sit down one on one with the, with America which is, uh, I think, the goal, it indicates a possible willingness to talk, and that's a good thing. Winston Churchill, you know, jaw-jaw is better than war-war, and that's certainly the case in, when we come to nuclear war. The other side of it is the December 22nd United Nations sanctions, the Security Council added one more additional layer of sanctions, but these were very... Um, very severe sanctions. They were going to, a lot of detail to it, but basically they're going to cut 90% of the refined petroleum products going to North Korea. And they're also, this hasn't been paid enough attention to, demanding the repatriation of North Koreans working abroad. North Korea has long paid for its uh, receiving of various goods and services, and who knows what kind of um, intelligence and help on their missiles and nukes by sending their workers abroad to help out, uh, basically in, under slave wage uh, operations. You know, the workers are sent abroad, the checks are sent home, the workers can't leave, you know, they've got no passports. And this was true of Russia and, uh, and China as well, so other places as well. So is, it a, is this a case of now North Korea saying we've done it, we're ready to start in a new year, or... In addition to that is, 
these are really hurting us, as Donald Trump has said, and what, and which was the intention. So is this Kim Jong-un saving face within his, uh, his own country and, 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 and accepting the severity of these sanctions? And is he just using the Olympics as a goodwill gesture? We aren't sure this is going to go ahead on the Olympics. We can talk separately about that in a moment. It also can be a reversion to a very, very well-known pattern. You, a lot of bluster, a lot of threats, and in this case, meaningful advances mm-hmm. in the t- nuclear technology. And remember, they've also got biological and other kinds of weapons of mass destruction uh, in their arsenal. So is this just a case of saying, okay, we've led up to the brink, now, now buy us off, now back off, and in mm-hmm. two or three years you repeat the cycle. This has been the historic example. They'll make promises and then break them, lead to a new crisis, back off in the crisis, and start over again. We aren't sure exactly what's going on. From my view, I think it's very helpful that the channel which South Korea has made available for getting out of the crisis, which is, in terms of what we can see visibly, the only channel where there might be some kind of uh, peaceful dialogue opening up, now does seem to be, uh, initially on this talk uh, that we just heard, initially it does seem as if the North Koreans are interested in taking advantage of the way out. Uh, How is the U.S. uh, reacting to this? Not only um, uh, uh, his stance on, not only his stance on uh, chatting with with South Korea and reopening dialogue there, but just in general for his speech that he gave on on New Year's. So far, it's been rather typical. There's been a tweet. What an amazing uh, way to conduct foreign affairs. There's been a tweet <laughs> saying, Little Rocket Man is now yielding to the pressure we put on. Our, our sanctions are, ta- are biting him, and therefore he's now willing to talk. Uh, it's, a, it's a plausible enough stance, although the, not normal diplomatic language. Uh, that being said, uh, how will Kim Jong-un react to Trump's tweet in his response? At the end of the day, uh, wouldn't diplomacy go a little farther than a tweet? If, he, if what we see coming up, let's, let's review where we are. The, the olive branch that's being held out is that for the first time, there's been a clear indication that North Korea might indeed take part in the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Now, they... The January 9th has been proposed by South Korea to accept the potential offer by North Korea to talk about sending a delegation, that is, people to participate, sports people to participate. That's one month in advance of the opening of the actual Winter Olympics, a very tight time frame. If what South Korea is offering, which is, now let's sit down, work out the modalities. Do you want to have a joint uh, combined... um, delegation, so there's only one Korean, North and South, uh, representing all of Korea mm. in the Winter Olympics. Where do you want to live? Uh, what do you want to do about the cheering squads? There's lots of details that are important to the face and, and the structure of all this. But right now what we see is the possibility that North Korea is going to actually respond in a positive way to the only visible channel we have to get us out of a nuclear crisis. Uh, is Trump concerned that that Kim Jong-un is trying to negotiate with South Korea? Does that put a wedge between the relationship with South Korea and the this United States? This is certainly States? the interpretation being given immediately in, by Western analysts in particular, is that 
this is a very devious and clever way for North Korea to separate out South Korea from its closest ally and its main protector, the United States. Remember, we also are, are players here in, in a small way, but we are connected to South Korea and its defense and its, and its future. So, uh, yes, that's certainly one possibility. Does that override the logic of accepting this? Uh, I, I think not. Let's, let's back up a little and say what's going on here. What's going on here, I think, is that there's now a genuine perception that America might possibly actually lead some kind of a military strike against the North, a preemptive strike to defang them before the North American and the American homeland is, in fact, vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That seems to be possibly being taken seriously by China and by Russia, who backed those U.N. sanctions in December against their own economic and other interests. Uh, South Korea, North Korea is being provided by China of all that oil, and 10% has come from Russia, and the workers also are, that's of, of benefit, in particular to Russia. They are voting against their own economic interests, apparently. Does that mean they think that America is serious about a preemptive war? Does that mean that North Korea has now accepted that there might be a preemptive war, and that's leading to a change of behavior. Hmm. I think that's the big picture here. Uh, the country's head of the country's unification ministry said uh, Seoul had consulted with the U.S. and had Washington's blessing. How can they n- say anything else, really? I mean, they're talking. That's a good thing, no? Well, we aren't sure how to take these comments from both Washington and and, and let's and let's Korea, and let's remember too that South Korea is the neighbor here that's you yeah. know that's under threat. Yeah, the the site of the of the games are only fifty miles from the from the DMZ, so within easy artillery range. Another, you know, this is mm-hmm. it's in a strategically sensitive area to start with, although apparently very beautiful and national parks and so forth. So yes, uh, there's a lot of diplomatic dancing going on. And what I, at, let's on the, you know, the opening of 2018, consider to be the number one international uh, issue, which is nuclear war, or the increase of possibility of nuclear war, or the possibility of accidental war, or proliferation, more states saying, hey, we've got to get into this because, look, North Korea's into this. A more nuclear war is, a world is a much more dangerous world, Scott, and that's the, of all the various crises, in the world, that's hmm. the number one. Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thank you for the time. We'll chat again. Well, and again, good, uh, good wishes to you and to the listeners for a new year. Happy New Year, Elliot. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Some major celebrities are joining forces to put an end to sexual harassment in the workplace, certainly in Hollywood, uh, donating to an organization called Time's Up. It's a legal fund. Uh, And, of course, uh, this all stemming from uh, sexual allegation charges uh, last year uh, throughout Hollywood, which eventually crossed crossed into politics and then uh, as well into private industry, although we're certainly hearing a lot less from that uh, than we do in, uh, you know, the popular entertainment industries. So our question is, uh, will this continue into 2018, or is this a story uh, much like the Cosby story, who ran, which ran, runs its course and moves on, or as these accusations continue to come forward, will this continue to add fuel to the fire and, of course, uh, eventually deal with this problem the way 
way it needs to be. I think everyone's aware the next step is how do we move forward with this? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. You can read her stuff on HuffingtonPostCanada.com and PR Daily. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for taking the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Scott. So your thoughts. This is a big story in 2017. Will it be just as big a story moving forward in 2018? Yes, absolutely. And I think that a campaign such as this is going to ensure that people, men and women, uh, do not feel fear in coming forward and actually have some support in coming forward. Because, you know, the money raised sort of takes off the the, the fear of, of things on the table such as cost and support. So, you know, when you come forward or you act as a whistleblower or you have your own um, story, often you're sort of caught in a vortex and some people want to help you, some people don't want to help you. But in most cases, you're kind of out there uh, alone. What this Time's Up campaign does says is, you know what? We're behind you. We're going to provide you with resources because what they want to do is close the gap between the willing, the, co- the coalition of the willing and uh, unable to do it because of lack of resources or lack of support. So I think what you'll see is, first of all, more than $13 million has already been raised for this. And I've already seen this all over my uh, my social feeds, especially on um, Insta stories. And I think what this is going to do is it's going to embolden people. And I think you're going to see more names drop in 2018. Can you pay your way out of this? Is it just about making a, a donation to this cause? There's a lot of actors and actresses, uh, entertainers on that on this list that have made donations anywhere from a thousand to fifty thousand, uh, five hundred thousand. Jennifer Aniston uh, has contributed. Uh, is this? Does this get you out of speaking out? I just write a check and we'll take care of it. Well, shouldn't the bigger shouldn't the shouldn't the bigger problem being shouldn't the bigger solution being uh, exposing these people rather than enabling them and just writing a check to make you feel better? Well, you know what? Yeah, I know you're playing devil's advocate here, but honestly, I think that there you and I have talked about the need for systematic change. Well, I can tell you that no studio is going to start taking the, you know, taking up the guard to say we're going to provide, we're going to start, we start with this, and we're going to provide the, you know, the systematic change that is needed for this whole industry. It's just not going to happen. So, in order to create change, and you ask any political expert this, is it has to come from the grassroots. And if enough noise and power and resources come from the grassroots. It can help encourage, A, encourage change, and B, prevent the story from dying. Uh, I'm looking at this list of people who have contributed, uh, Reese Witherspoon, another half-million-dollar donation, which kind of makes Oprah Winfrey's $100,000 donation look paltry. Um, companies involved here, a creative artist agency, ICB, ICM partners, Paradigm Talent Agency, United Talent, um, William Morris. These are all talent agencies donating anywhere from 500000 to $2 million uh, for this cause. But these are all talent agencies. Where are the companies involved here? Where are the entertainment companies? Well, what's interesting is that talent agencies do pull a lot of strings. And remember... People at talent agencies have likely known what has been going on for decades. 
So yes, is this sort of a uh, a check writing, a consciousness check writing that, okay, well, we gave a lot of money to this, so that should take us off the table for any further accusations, or is it a PR move to use in case it's a fallback and in case there are further accusations coming out in the next year? Yeah, it, it could absolutely be both. Scott, I guarantee you that there are still people here who have yet to be exposed and that are writing massive checks daily to people that they know could blow the whistle on them. And it's all hush money. So the talent agencies, I mean, this is sort of a preventive culpability. It's a, it is actually a very much a preventive measure to say, well, you know, we may not have done what we were supposed to do when we knew all this was going on, but what we're trying to do is make good now, and, we're, and the easiest thing is to write a check. How do we view those that accept hush money? Should we say, uh, well, good for you, you at least got something, or do we say it's your responsibility to speak out and stop enabling? Well, you know, it, it, it's hard, and hopefully campaigns like this will say, you know what, you don't need that type of hush money, we'll support you, and you should expose this person. But not everybody has such backbone, right? And, you know, secondly, you know, if you need money and somebody writes you a huge check, then that will absolutely buy your silence. But you still have to live with yourself. Yeah. And I guarantee you that there are scores and scores of actors and actresses, many, many that we have never heard about, who had their lives and their careers ruined and were never, ever heard of again. So, you know, this has been going on at a rate that we have no idea of yet, Scott. We really, really don't. And I think that when you want to provide systematic change, you can't wait for companies such as Paramount or Universal or any of these guys. You can't wait for them to, you know, come up with with the magic bullet. It's got to come from the constituency, and in this case, it is. Is uh, this problem deeper than we think it is or not as deep? Because I've said this, and I, I, we, when we talked earlier about this uh, in the past, I have said that I believe this apple is rotten right to the very core. Uh, that being said, who will be left standing? Well, not many people from some of the things that I'm reading. I mean, you look at any movie that was made with tons and tons of kids. You know, you've got to wonder what was going on um, in, in those movies. I think that there are a lot of directors and a lot of producers and a lot of enablers that have still yet to be uncovered. This is a very, very dark and seamy side of um, something that has been given the permission, tacitly given the permission to to keep going on because nobody was ever going to say boo about it. And, you know, the acting world is one of getting that big break. Yeah. And I'm sure that lots of men and women did things that they never wanted to do in order to get that big break. Are we to assume that everyone had to do something in order to get that big break? Because why would some, why would some yeah. why would some have to and, and others not only after they get to a point in their career I guess when they don't have to anymore but that didn't stop them from doing it maybe the first time or two. Um, but are, do, are is there anybody clean is there anybody the, clean out there? I don't know. I think the casting couch is. You know, not just a metaphor. I I think it really is sort of, you know, first state or first rites of passage in order getting to that first part. Uh, And it was often used, and and it was often just considered, okay, well, this is something I've got to do just to get in. How bad can it be? Yeah. So uh, are we to assume, like, you know, just run through the biggest actresses that you can think of, whether it's the Meryl Streeps or Halle Berry's, or are we just to assume that they've had to deal with all of this? 
Well, some of them have been strangely quiet. So Meryl Streep has been I think that's, yeah, what's going on there? Very oblique, because there's no way she didn't know what Harvey Weinstein was doing. Yeah. I'm sorry. There's no way. She's been around too long. Another actor who hasn't said much about it or hasn't really condoned it, but has been very sort of oblique also, is Tom Hanks. Mm. He's worked with all these guys. He knew He knew what was going on. And, you know, when we when just, when the allegations first came out about Dustin Hoffman, everybody's like, no, no, it can't be, not Tootsie. And then it wasn't one, and then it was two, then three, then four, then five. And some people say, well, gee, he's older. It was a different time. No, it was a different time. Don't tell me that a different time gave permission to be permissive with women and to have your way with them just because you knew you could. There was never a time when we actually said, it's okay to do this. Yeah. People may have thought, well, that's just what was done. It doesn't make it right. What, how will the public feel when they do realize how deep this does go? Well, they could be disgusted, disgusted enough that maybe they'll just stop going to movies. Well, or, and I we've mean, talked about I'm, this before, that, you know, the, the whole entertainment business is changing. It's gone from big studios to places like Netflix and such. So is this the fall of traditional old Hollywood? You know, it could be. And just remember, viewing habits are changing anyway. So, you know, whether this has, it's not yeah. even related to the subject, but viewing habits are very much changed. You know, when my daughter wants to see a movie, she'll pop over on her computer. Yeah. Maybe she'll go to the theater. I mean, she did over the past couple of weeks go to the theater. But, you know, honestly, consuming habits are much different. So, you know, there's a lot of um, things that are happening that are going to incur change. You know, there's viewing habits, there's uh, consumers finding out about what these directors and producers really like, and, and people can vote with their conscience and they can vote with their dollars. So, you know, whether, is it going to mean the fall of the entertainment industry? No, but it's going to be, give it a very black eye, which it has right now, hmm. it's given it a very black eye that it will be very hard to recover from. How long till we see a movie about this? Well, somebody's got to have the guts to make it, Scott. <laughs> hmm. Maybe it's the only way to get out of. Maybe it's the only way to get out of the accusations against your company. It will have to be on another provider. It'll never be through a mainstream studio. It would hmm. have to be indie, or it'd have to be completely on another platform because it would never be a movie that we. Well, I shouldn't say never, but I can't see it at this point, anybody producing and putting a movie into distri- distribution about uh, predatory behavior of, uh, of, of producers and directors. People still have long memories. I guarantee you that even though we're talking about all this and I'm saying to you that there's going to be more names spelled, eh, four or five years you'll see Harvey Weinstein back on the scene. Mm, interesting. Uh, does this change our view of people like Tom Hanks? And I, and I saw him on an interview discussing this, and I can't remember where it was. It was I think it was one on one of the Sunday morning shows. And he did kind of gloss over it all. He didn't really kind of gave you that, you know, dad kind of talk about the whole thing. Does our view of someone like a Tom Hanks uh, change if we find out he knew about all of this? It would change his mind. It would absolutely change, 100%. Uh, you know, you, you can't think that you can gloss over this without it eventually catching up to you. You know, really, you can't. 
And I think people are, you know, someone like Tom Hanks and someone like Meryl Streep are sort of taking the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. They're not coming out extreme for, they're not coming out extreme against. They're just sort of like sliding up the middle. And, you know, that disgusts some people, but is it enough to derail their careers? I I would say no. No, as as you've suggested, like people are still going to want to be entertained. Well, exactly. But I still think that there are names to fall and there are names to come. And it just depends whether people still want to keep quiet or not. Uh, when we look at someone like a Tom Hanks, are we just to assume, wow, Tom would never partake in any of this kind of behavior? Or maybe he was taken advantage of in some way. I mean, who can we look at? And do we not now look at everybody in Hollywood and think, oh, there's one, there's one, that's not one. I mean, wh- where do you stop questioning? I think that we have to, uh, you know, we think of Tom Hanks as as his persona as we see him in movies. Nobody knows what Tom Hanks is really like. You know, yeah. I don't hang out with him. Do you hang out with him? Nope. Or, you know, so all we know is what we see. Wouldn't it be funny if all of a sudden he turned out just to be a, a drunken bastard, just a no well, good guy, <laughs> just the exact opposite of everything we thought? Well, who knows? But no. the fact of the matter is, we relate to these people is in terms of the characters that they play. And we have empathy for them, and we like them. So, you know, you think of Forrest Gump. You know, you think of all these, you know, these characters that Tom Hanks has played, which tend to be heroic in some sense. But did every, le- did, every leading la- did every leading lady that he had to play across from have to sleep their way to get in the, the part next to his? Who knows? Yeah. Maybe not with him, but maybe with the directors or the producers. So, you know, I, I, I think that we have to... You know, look at these people differently. We we have to think that we really don't know who they are at all. Hmm. They're not their characters. They're actors. They're playing a character. Do we make Hollywood raise its standards, or does Hollywood lower the standards for society with something like this? Well, I think that they, Hollywood dumps down a lot of stuff. But you know what? We've been seeing Woody Allen movies forever. And let's let's just remember, he married his stepdaughter. Yeah. And that didn't stop people from seeing his movies. But now, and he also has a very huge, huge PR machine. But let's let's not be stupid. You know, he was with her before they married. Yeah. Um, and I, that is as sick to me as it gets. Yeah. Uh, certainly, and it will be interesting to see how these older actors uh, are, are handled or, or are treated compared to those that are younger and, and supposedly uh, in a different time. What about Matt Lauer's replacement? Oh, I love Hoda Kotb. Mm-hmm. I love her. And first of all, NBC is Universal is not going to do anything without having their testing. And I am sure since she's on that third, I guess the fourth hour for um, the Today Show with Kathy Lee, mm-hmm. they know that she tests well and they know that she has an affinity with the audience and they love her. And she also has a show on Sirius XM. And you watch her. And listen, I've been watching morning TV since I'm not even going to tell you how many decades. And, you know, she is just somebody that reminds me of the Today Show of old, you know, when Katie Quirk was on, when Mm. they called those four hosts America's first family. And they Mm. were. They're just a ratings juggernaut. And they bring in, I would say, probably more than half of uh, all the money that, you know, NBC needs in order to make all, all their shows. So they're a huge funding base for that. What about the fact that it was a woman rather than a man? Well, I mean, yeah. You know, Does listen, it matter? I'll be honest. I, I, you know, when you say, you know, Hoda Kotb got the job, I'm not saying that it was a calculated decision, although I'm sure it played into the fact that she is a woman and not a man. 
I think that if there was a great guy that had that sort of resonance with the audience and that was familiar with the NBC Today Show audience, they would have considered him too. And I'm sure that there are people that they would have. I mean, there's Carson Daly, but maybe they just didn't feel he had, um, you know, uh, the chops to do it. Who knows? But I prefer to think that Hoda Kotb was chosen based completely on her merits and Mm. not just because she was a woman. Um. I'm looking at this list of contributors again. Uh, Kate Capshaw, Steven Spielberg's Wonder, uh, Wonder Kinder Foundation, $2 million. What about someone like a Spielberg? I mean, oh, you know... Don't even get me started. He's got to know as well, no? <laughs> well, Steven Spielberg did lots and lots of movies with lots and lots of kids. So, who knows? I think that there's... I don't know, I'm speculating, but... You you, you got to think that people who are giving the most, maybe they do have the most to hide. I don't know, Scott. It is kind of interesting, and maybe this is, and I don't know why I'm doing this, but it's it's interesting looking at some people who made astronomical contributions and others who just gave like a thousand bucks. And like a thousand bucks to these people is chump change, right? Well, you know, you may have that's, you that's may be dinner something. You absolutely could be onto something. You know, the more money you give, is it the more that you have to hide? Is, are those guilt dollars? They could be. So how can the other forms of media um, uh, capitalize on this? If you're a Netflix or if you're one of these younger media companies, uh, what are you doing? How are you conducting business? And obviously you're making sure that none of this is going on within your house. Well, you know, you hope that things are, you know, we want systematic change, but trust me, the system hasn't changed by any stretch of the imagination. They're probably just trying to be more careful. You know, if you're a younger media company, you're still going to have the same struggles in getting what you produce out, unless you already have a deal, a distribution deal. You know, any media company or any filmmaker, the first thing that they need is a distribution deal. And so those people still hold all the cards. And who are the conduits and distributors? Well, agents are. So everybody is in everybody's pocket here. And what drives this industry is money. So, you know, you may want to do something differently, but you're working within an industry where, you know, old habits die hard. Hmm. So if you, you know, and and by, and so what? So let's say you make a movie about this or you make some sort of documentary about this. Well, you better be... Hmm. You better have you better knock point. it out of the park because it's the you last pitch you're getting. Out of the park, <laughs> and you better be absolutely lock sure that yeah. everything and anything you say cannot be brought about in a lawsuit. Yeah, think about that just in in those terms alone. Uh, Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.